0: Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm Tom Pruchet, Director of Electrification for Monroe and Associates, and today we're going to interview Don Wright, VP of Engineering at Unico LLC. So um, I've taken a little bit of effort to do a little bit of research into Don's background. Discovered a lot of interesting commonalities uh, in our past, our mutual past, and. Uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see how well we avoid those topics, just simply <laughs> by the gravity that they cause. Um, but yeah, uh, Don has got quite a storied past of his own, and uh, you know, with that, uh, you know, welcome, Don. Um,
1: thank you, thank you very much. It's it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I, I wanted, to, I was looking forward to joining last week when I was in Novi for the at the battery show. Uh, but it didn't work out. But I'm still happy to be here today. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, like you did, I I looked you up as well. And and we have a, uh, a lot of areas where I'm sure our paths have crossed in the past. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today about the exciting things that Unico is doing, uh, especially in the uh, EV testing space.
0: All right. Well, that's a great place to kick off. But, you know, before we get too far into that, let's talk a little bit about your distant past, you know, kind of understand what brought you here. Um, you know, I look at your education, and you went to what I would call Larry Tech. I don't know if that's okay for you to... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, for I me used to, to call it, call it Larry Tech all the time. Did so. you? Okay, so Lawrence Technological University, great place to come from. And uh, yeah, you've spent some time at various places through the years. Um, MTS Powertech, I had some strange overlap with those companies. Um, AVL, and now Unico. Um, so, you know, at Powertech, um, I was involved with some things way back in the day, and I had uh, the opportunity to meet a guy named Jim Juranich. Was that one of your uh, uh, oh, yeah. past bosses? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, near genius, if not genius guy, and uh, I actually did a consulting gig gig for him myself once so um yeah that and wow what a transition at avl going from project engineer to global business segment manager and then finally at unico tell us a little bit about those past experiences and you know how you got here through those
1: Yeah, certainly. So, you know, I grew up in Southeast Michigan. My dad worked at Ford. Uh, I worked at Boeing before and then we moved. uh, Well, he moved him and my mom moved to the Detroit area in uh, the early 70s. And we were I was born in Dearborn. And so, you know, I've been around cars my entire life. We used to go to the Dino Lab down at Ford for Christmas parties with Santa. And and so I think I was always kind of drawn to that kind of uh, engineering aspects. And uh, went to Wall Lake Western. Uh, as and as you mentioned, for, well, first I did a little bit at, at Western Michigan University. And then I had the opportunity to work at ABL as an intern, engineering intern. And so I transferred to Lawrence Technological University for my double E degree and also finished up my engineering studies and then was working at ABL. And then my first real job was at MTS Powertech with Jim Juranich. I mean, he used to work on his car in the in the back of the building there in Farmington. Still have ironically still have good friends from those days, Uh, um, Ray Skinner and and some of the guys I saw last week at the battery show. So it's really, it's a funny tight community. Um, And then, of course, it went from uh, MTS Power Attack and then a and I came back uh, to ADL after my intern days back in early 2000. Um, And I really had the opportunity to transition from, you know, designing the test equipment that we were building in North America Um, Then into, you know, doing big projects uh, for customers like GM. I know you had some time at GM as well. Um, So, you know, back in the mid 2000s, they, you know, consolidated a bunch of their test labs into what they called the GM One Lab. So I had the honor of working at GM for that project. Um, And then I kind of moved into product management because I really liked kind of the business development aspects of developing a new product and and we developed a product and and I already started to get into the battery space at that time because AVL was doing some battery development projects in Ann Arbor and some of the test equipment was having, they were struggling with the automation system not being able to run for 24-7, 365 unmanned. And if you know anything about battery testing, that's not a that's not a good thing. If, if something locks up at full charge on a big battery pack, that's that's not a good situation. So we started creating an automation platform for battery testing. And then uh, I was d- doing lots of business development and product management there. And then I was invited to go to Graz and live in Austria for, for a, a period of time, which was going to be like two to three years doing business development for AVL in the electrification space. That two to three years turned into nine years. Um, beautiful location. I met my wife there and uh, had a great time. Lots of great people. Worked on great projects. And as you mentioned, you know, my last you know role there was global business segment manager for cell testing. We were getting heavily into battery cell testing at that time. Um, But then right at the beginning of COVID or, you know, the first few months, I had the opportunity to come back to the U.S. in the Midwest, just on the other side of Lake Michigan, so joining Unico as the Director of Engineering of R&D at that time. And then uh, since then, now I've been promoted to the Vice President of Engineering, so I'm overseeing all of our R&D activities, all of our system engineering for our customers, and so I've been in this industry, I've seen lots of things over many, many years.
0: Very cool. And I know for myself, I had an introduction to Unico way back in the day at a, a former employer, and I was pleasantly surprised at the technology under the hood, if you will. The, there was a, an inverter that we were using, and it had the ability to emulate the cylinder firings of an engine, and I just found that to be very fascinating. And uh, spent a lot of time with that machine, using it for that particular application and uh, uh, came away very impressed with what Unicode could do back then and now I look at their portfolio and it's it's uh, it's really comprehensive and um, you know the company apparently dates back to 1967 I didn't know that and then you've been there now since like 2020. So, um, you know, tell us about some of the things that get you excited at, at Unico. What are some of the things that are current offerings that uh, you'd like to describe to our listenership here, if you will?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, l- l- as you mentioned, the, the company came from the late 60s, you know, doing digital control of drives. They were one of the first companies doing that. And and I would say they were pushing the boundaries of what you could do with drive technology. Um of course late 70s early 80s developing that technology into engine or ICE powertrain test systems especially when emissions were starting to become you know a hot topic um and and this is where like the torque pulse simulation stuff that you were talking about so if you're doing durability transmission or durability testing on a transmission but you didn't want to run an engine for weeks months at a time you could use one of our drives to simulate the pulses of the engine uh, on that transmission and 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 understand what the life of that transmission was, and then quite quickly after that, it transitioned into adding on, you know, DC power sources to our to our dyno systems because there was hybrid technology coming, battery electric vehicles were coming, and what is really exciting for me is to see some of these. Technologies that we've, you know, built up and established over the years now being applied to much higher voltages, much higher powers. Um, We're using new technologies like silicon carbide and GAN to have extremely high switching frequencies um, to allow us to have much better control and smaller packaging in our test systems. And this, of course, is needed because as customers are trying to maybe they have some old engine test beds that they want to upgrade to electrification and they want to put an e-motor test bit in there now they need a dc source and an ac drive for the dynamometer with very good control because if you're you're controlling an electric motor with another electric motor you need to have much better control of the load unit um, than maybe if it was connected to an internal combustion engine and so we have the capabilities and we have lots of customers that are asking us hey what can you put into place we don't have so much space um, we need to save energy. We don't want to bring in megawatts of power into our facility. And we have the unique ability um, to be able to recirculate energy in the DC bus. So if you imagine the unit under test is, is getting a DC power, that's so like a battery emulator, getting that DC power in, it's turning it into rotational energy, which is being absorbed by the dynamometer, and that energy is going back into the test system. And if you can recirculate that energy, you're not pulling all of that energy or putting all of that energy back into the building grid. And this can reduce the size of the power feeds going into the facility. And we have lots of very exciting conversations, especially last week for customers that are doing that. They need to upgrade their old test facilities. They have older test equipment and they need our help to, to put new test equipment in there.
0: Wow. Very cool. So, you know, just a little um, translation for those listening who don't, understand some of our terminologies you know a drive is a device that uh, we might call different names uh, depending on their application but you know there's a variable frequency ac component to that that runs a motor and what a lot of people don't know is about the dc link that's inside there and what low-hanging fruit that was to grab onto that thing and use it for other purposes like battery emulation and or as what you said you know regenerative drives where The only real power that has to be fed to a system like that is the power of the losses. So I just, I, you know, always marveled at Unico being kind of on the front line of all that stuff. And now everybody tries to catch up, if you will. And it's, uh, it's very exciting. But what I didn't know about Unico is that you're also involved with oil and gas well monitoring, uh, so okay, kind of the other side of the coin there, if you will. Any commentary about that? Is that going away, or is there uh, no end in sight?
1: Well, I mean, of course, if if you you know talk to especially a lot of the electrification enthusiasts, um, oil and gas is often a bad word and and stuff like this. But what people don't realize is, other than burning it in cars, we use oil and gas for lots of other applications, and and we're going to need that for a long time, and and. You know, Unico has a long history in that industry Um, and we have a lot of very interesting technologies that allow us to get more um, capacity out of the wells um, faster, safer, more efficiently than a lot of our competitors. So we have a lot of algorithms that we actually run inside of the drive, which can determine what's going on down inside the well. So, for example, we can determine if there's going to be a blockage or if we're pulling too much water out or gas out, um, we can determine that by the load profiles on the electric motors. And then we can adjust those operating points to try to maximize the efficiency from those wells. Mm. We're also doing things like putting solar panels on and adding re- regenerative drives so that as the you know the pump head is going down, you're regenerating energy, so you're not using as much energy to, to pull that oil out of the ground. And we also have some very interesting technologies that allow us to have you know, get rid of those big, huge, loud, bulky um, oil pumps with something that's much more efficient. It's quieter, quieter. It's safer, um, and you can do more with it. it. It's called the LRP. It's a linear rod pump, so it's using um, motors on a, a like a rack and a pinion in order to do the pump in action. So, you know, yes, yeah, certainly we have a lot of customers that are focusing on electrification, but we also have a lot of customers that are relying on on uh, their oil wells to keep producing. And so we can support those customers as well.
0: So very cool. So in addition to the normal rotary motors that we're used to linear motors are also in your repertoire, if you will. And that's, that's a very cool thing. A lot of people don't realize the similarity between that. I have a, uh, a linear actuator that needs to go some distance and come back again. There's no reason why you can't control that like a a normal, uh, AC three-phase motor, and uh, it sounds like you've got quite a bit of background in that with uh, the offering for oil and gas well monitoring, particularly those pumps. So I also noticed um, it's like a major product line in the power conditioning realm. You know, there's a lot of filters, there's uh, uh, a lot of very unique devices that kind of work behind the scenes when you start talking about things like motors and drives. Um, Is this something that you would keep just for your own in-house purposes, or do you sell those devices to maybe even your competitors? I don't know how that works. Um,
1: No, No, absolutely for sure. Because we've been in the industry for so long, we've had to solve lots of problems over decades of experience. And so we have a lot of these different products. Some go in our systems, especially some of our legacy systems. Um, Some we sell to customers or or competitors um, if they need them for that, too, as well. So it's a product line that we maintain and and we sell every single day. So I wouldn't say we're spending lots of money in the development area on that. You know, a lot of our development funding is developing much higher performance, high frequency drives. um, But it's definitely a product line that we continue to support.
0: All right. And then you get into battery cyclers and emulators maybe you could you know tell our audience you know how they differentiate from each other it's obvious to me and you perhaps but not everyone else so let's talk yeah. about that a bit
1: yeah of course so you know one of the big challenges with battery electric vehicles or hybrid electric vehicles is you know how long is that battery going to last and you know we always get into these discussions or you know especially if people are trying to argue against it you know they might be saying oh yeah you know seven years or five years that batteries can end up in a landfill and there's so much hype and and misinformation out there but we Customers do need to test their batteries. They need to understand how much life is going to be available at five years, at seven years, at 10 years. They need to understand if it's operated in Arizona or Nevada in these super hot temperatures, what is the life of that battery going to be and what is its performance or in Alaska? or um, So So what they say, what they call battery cycling is we take, you know, sometimes it starts as small as the individual cell, goes up to like maybe the modules. So As we've seen lots of teardown videos on Monroe, you know, you see the individual cells and then you have the modules and then, of course, you have the battery packs. Um, You can cycle those So, so charging, discharging, you do drive profiles on them, you do rest states on them, and then you do this hundreds or thousands of times, and you basically you know, I I told one of our investors, I said, it's like exercise equipment for the electric powertrain. So you essentially cycle the battery over and over again, and then you give it a stress test. And then you say, okay, this is how much capacity is left. It's 94%, you know, life available. And then we have a lot of customers that are trying to understand, okay, at the end of the first life, so maybe 12, 15 years, um, I have this battery that might have 75, 80, 85% of its life left. What can I do with it? Well, with Second Life applications, you can then build it into like a home energy storage system to supplement your house um, when you know when the solar panels are not working, or you can build local energy storage systems in you know, the neighborhoods to help support the grid when you have Midwest storms and, and the power goes out for a couple days. And so I think there's a lot of interesting applications for second life batteries from EVs after 12 to 15 years, where we can still get another 15-20 years of life out of the battery pack. And then, of course, at the end of that. Uh, second life, then you want to understand, okay, how can I discharge this battery so that we could recirculate or repurpose or, um, recycle the battery pack, get the materials out of it. Most of the battery packs are 95 to 98% recyclable, get the raw materials back out of that battery pack, build another battery and then. This is what Elon Musk was talking about, where he wants to have this circular economy where once you have enough raw material in this life cycle chain of electric vehicles, you don't have to mine anymore because there's going to be enough raw material that can be recycled from old batteries that can be built up into new batteries. So Unico makes battery cyclers so that we can do all of this testing, this, this discharging before recycling. but. If you take on the flip side and you want to test the inverter and the electric motor in a powertrain but you don't want to have a real battery pack or you don't want to wait for a battery pack to be charged or discharged to be able to test it we can use our same systems to emulate those battery packs so you put those on as a dc source you can say you know hey this is what the voltage is this is how much this is the power limits and then you can run that electric motor and that the and that inverter on the test bed as if the real battery pack was in there
0: Oh, Very cool. So do you ever find yourself in situations where a client might want to create a battery pack uh, in the virtual world and have you emulate its performance characteristics, you know, down to fast charging and, um, you know, limits uh, being exceeded in behavior of battery management systems in those situations? Do you do that part too or...
1: Yeah, yeah. So so we have cell test equipment that can also emulate the cells so that you can do battery management system development on a on a piece of hardware without the actual cells. And we also have a new controller that we just launched that allows us to embed a battery model, you know, a simulink or MATLAB or simulink model inside of the controller so that you can then define the parameters of those cells, whatever chemistry it is and then you could put that battery model inside and then the battery emulator will act like that battery pack. So you can say, hey, there's you know, there's 96 cells in series. Um, this is the chemistry, this is the curve, create a model for that and then put that into our system and then we can emulate that battery pack. Maybe even the temp- effect of temperature, you can have different curves for zero degrees, five degrees, 10 degrees, 20 degrees, so that when the battery pack is in a climate chamber, or the um, when the UUT is in a climate chamber, you can say, hey, I'm outside in Wisconsin at minus 20. It will act like the battery pack would act like.
0: All right. Again, very cool. I, I know from my own past, I've got a little bit of experience with motor development, and um, something that was always missing in action, in my view, for many years was the ability to do the same thing for emulation of a motor. And lo and behold, you do that, too. So tell us about motor emulators.
1: Yeah, yeah. so one of the very uh, important things during the vehicle development is developing the inverter or the power electronics. This is sort of the main controller. It's controlling the energy in and out of the battery into the electric motor. And as you probably know, a lot of times if the electric motor is not available, you can't put it on a dyno and and test the inverter. And so we have technologies where we can basically use a high performance power electronics to replicate the AC load onto that inverter so that you can test that inverter with full power, um, do durability testing, you can test different operating conditions, making sure that certain faults don't cause that inverter to shut down or go into a failure mode. So you can basically, load down that inverter as if it was connected to the real electric motor. And so we have a lot of really exciting projects going on with several customers right now where they're asking us to be able to do this inverter testing uh, using, let's say, uh, AC load on one side on the output of the inverter and a battery emulator on the input so that we can control that whole test process. Wow.
0: So, yeah, so many different tentacles out into the industry that we all know and love so much. Um, but then there's the custom products. I found that to be intriguing, too. You know, custom DC to DC converters and inverters. You know, how far does that scale? Are those still sort of focused on industrial and test, or do you actually cross over into product development for things like vehicle applications of DC to DC converters and things like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So right now, most of those applications, what we call CPD or custom product development, those are heavily used in the locomotive industry. So for example, we have specific or custom drives that we use that control the climate conditioning system and all of the locomotive cars that you see in like a a passenger train. Um, Of course, this is probably more popular, especially for Europe than it is in the US, but uh, we have a lot of drives in that aspect. And we are exploring and we are having Having some customers that are asking us to develop stuff for the passenger car environment, we're going to have some exciting news in the, f- in the near future on those topics. I can't share it with you today, um, but we do have some things in the pipeline that will be uh, definitely addressed for the passenger car market.
0: Like you were reading my mind. So since you already mentioned some things you can't talk about, tell us some of the more edgy items you can talk about. Anything that might be a new product offering in the public domain or something that uh, would give us a little bit of a snippet of the near future for Unico. What What do you have you can give us today? Anything?
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, last week at the battery show, we are happy to show, you know, some of the new cell testers that we're bringing to market. So these are extremely high performance um, gallium nitride cell based cell testers. So extremely high switching frequencies, extremely small footprint for very high power. So this is really exciting for for customers that have large labs. Uh, where they need to test lots and lots of cells, but they don't want to have, you know, racks and racks and racks of equipment. So this is very exciting. Um, We also, you know, I showed, I had a post on LinkedIn yesterday showing a whole bunch of our silicon carbide inverters. So we're doing some, for some customers, some extremely high voltage, high power systems. So, you know, doing an e-axle for, let's say, very large machinery. So, 2 megawatt dyno motors, 2 megawatt battery emulator, uh, 3000 volts. So we have some very huge machines that are coming out that we're going to standardize and then offer some customers because we often see that customers want to have test equipment that they can test, let's say, their high performance battery packs for vehicles. But then also test home energy storage battery, or let's say stationary energy storage battery packs, and those might be 1500 volts 2000 volts. And so we have solutions that can then bridge that gap coming. So this this will be very exciting. Um, We also have a a new product which allows us to test multiple battery packs all in a single system using the same recirculation of energy. But the unique thing here is all of the channels are completely isolated from each other. So we have what we call a high frequency resonant converter on each of these channels. And this allows us to recirculate energy so you can do what sometimes is called seesaw, charging and discharging the batteries. So just moving energy from one battery pack to the, to the other. This substantially reduces the grid uh, energy needed for that test system so we have some systems that are coming out we can go up to 10 12 channels super high power 500 kilowatts per channel um, all in a single system
0: all right well that kind of covers the product range at unico um, past present and a little snippet of the future so we appreciate that So one of the other things that I see that you get involved with, and it's a subject near and dear to my heart, and that is uh, the education of our youth. You have some mentoring that you do, and you're involved with FIRST, a a global robotics community preparing young people for the future. Well, yeah, there couldn't be much that's more important to me than that. I spent a lot of my time doing it myself. So tell us a little bit about FIRST and your involvement there. I don't know if you have any stories you can give our audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have, I always say that it was the hardest fun I ever had. So, you know, I was really a lead mentor for a couple different first robotics teams from 2000 until probably 2012, 2013, when I was in Austria. I, I kind of, I did it a little bit remotely when I was there. Um, had tremendous, uh, a ton of fun, learned a lot, um, learned what it really meant to work hard and have fun. Um, I had a, team 469 out of West Bloomfield one of the hardest working teams ever so i you know they had a mindset like i did and and i was lucky to have a couple mentors that worked with me that you know we had a model that we didn't go to go home until the last students wanted to go home so if you know i i spent many nights after midnight working with the students, trying to, you know, build robots to compete in this competition, uh, and then only to get up at five in the morning, go into work and and start the whole thing again. And um, great times, met lots of great people in that organization. Um, Actually, when we moved to Wisconsin, my wife and I went to the Milwaukee Regional, um, and we were going to join a team that was just down the street from us. Um, Then we... uh, we're blessed with a, a new daughter so we have a four-month-old um, that we're taking care of, you know that's taking most of our time right now so we're focusing on that but i'm hoping she's a future first robotic student in the uh in a few years i'm really excited to work with her and but of course in whatever she wants to do
0: all right she should be well prepared i'm sure so um what should our kids be studying to prepare for this future turn your vision visionary self on and, and you know how can they uh, best contribute to our society as we go forward you know obviously the mentoring uh gives you some insight on that but you have obviously some of your own thoughts on that as well what should they be doing
1: yeah i mean the most important thing is to try to find something that inspires them and and makes them excited to to work and be a part of a, a contributing part of society you know and I, you know i've i've gone through the university program went to school and got my masters and 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 my bachelor's of science um but i also know that college is not for everybody so and i know that there's a lot of skilled trade stuff that is also incredibly important for our organization so construction you know mechanics uh, lots of different things and and so one of the things we always I always try to say is try to find something that you have passion for, something that you you know the the old phrase of hey if you do do something that you love you're never going to work a day in your life. So the idea is really try to find something that you're passionate about. If you know if, if it's arts and if it's in the sciences, if it's engineering, if it's in physics, or if it's hey be a plumber, or electrician, a or con- you know construction worker, you know do something that helps you feel fulfilled that drives you to get up every day and be a contributing member of society Um, and that's really the most important thing we we all need everybody to work together on this um, and don't maybe try to be you know shoehorned into a a specific role or something if it doesn't make you happy and uh, there's a lot of great mentors out there lots of great programs um, and no matter what you want to do. So seek those out. And if, and if you can't find something, you know, keep doing some research. The internet is a great place to find some di- different programs, but I think you got to just, you know, be passionate about something and then see how far you can take it.
0: Very cool. And I'm going to guess that that was the plan you followed yourself. Uh, I know it is for me and it's refreshing to hear that that's still a good set of guidelines. Um, you know, do a job you enjoy, and yeah, you'll always be happy at it, and it'll help drive you through the thick and thin and the, the difficult and problematic, and in the end, it's all fun. So you kind of described did. my job here at Monroe & Associates in some ways. so uh, I would totally concur on that. We have, to, uh, we have to get people out of the mode where they're doing the job they hate, there's plenty of jobs, and uh, as we educate our kids, we'll be able to, you know, do a lot more. Um, spend a lot of time talking about uh, you and your past and your companies and your mentoring, and now uh, let's kind of delve off into some technology. I'm sure in your role, you get involved with a lot of different technologies and. You know, one of the things I know our audience is always looking for is, you know, what's the next big thing, or let's just take one subject at a time, batteries. You know, for the longest time, we've kind of just categorized batteries as lithium ion. You know, they followed on after nickel metal hydride in cars, but with lithium ion, now we have NMC, NCA, um, LFP, XYZ, you name it, it's coming, right? So... Are any of these technologies exciting to you? Do you see one stand out and, you know, maybe be the thing that we should hope for to be the standard of the future? Or is it more like, you know, I'll be honest, my view is it's kind of all of the above, Uh, there's going to be a lot of different mixed technologies in my view, but I'm maybe not as close to it as you might be. And and maybe you have one that stands out as something that'd be important with solid state electrolytes and lithium metal anodes and, uh, you know, increases in uh, energy density, volumetric and gravimetric, and obviously power and my favorite subject, safety. What do you think about these battery technologies? Where is it going and uh, is there a standout?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. Um, it, it ties to a conversation I had this morning with the customer talking about a new battery technology. Um, you know, it, it's very interesting and it's in a very interesting topic because especially you see a lot of these press releases and lots of hype on different things. Um, so I, I guess, let me start with something that I said earlier. I think this kind of transition to LFP or transition back to LFP. I mean, we we, st- we had LFP batteries for a long time uh, in other applications, but maybe they were not seen as suitable for the electric vehicle market because everybody seems to think they need to drive 500 miles on a single charge and be able to, you know, go 0 to 60 in one point something seconds. Um, I I think this transition back to LFP is an important one. We get a little bit of the inherent safety in that kind of chemistry. Um, This transition into, as I said before, from cell to module to pack to more of like the, let's say three sub packs and in in a frame, I really think that this is going to be a trend. Um, I, I can't imagine that this trend of ever bigger batteries with much more capacity. You know, it's interesting, but for the twenty thousand dollar EV that anybody can buy, um, you're going to need much smaller battery packs, and and it's going to have to be safer. So I think we're going to. We're going to see a, a shift back down to a lot of development work in the 400 volt range, uh, smaller battery packs. We just went and bought a bolt last night, actually, um, and it was, you know, it's when you're trying to weigh all the different options and and what's available for certain tax credits, um, you know, you're you're quite limited. You mentioned solid state, uh, you know, that's always kind of the big hype, um, but I also know that there's significant challenges that. Don't ever seem to make it into the press releases like, you know, most solid state, you know, methodologies that I know of require extremely high compression so they have to be really compressed with quite a bit of pressure. Um, they need to be warm to operate and they expand and contract over charging and discharging even up to like 20%. So if you have a battery pack that's needs to be completely compressed to work like five bar pressure needs to be at like 80 degrees C to operate and it has to be able to shrink and grow inside of the vehicle that's you know I think any of your colleagues at Monroe will will uh, attest to that's a very difficult mechanical solution, probably not going to be very expensive. Um, there were some speeches down at the battery seminar in Florida earlier this year where they were really saying that you know solid state for wearables is in the 2030 timeframe and then probably 2035, 2040 before solid state for EVs will will be real, despite you know some of the recent announcements. So I really think solid state is sort of a, this holy grail pipe dream that's out there. Um, But there's the cool thing about batteries is there's really a lot of people and a lot of very smart people um, looking and investigating and doing lots of research in the area. So, um, you know, I think every quarter there's new companies out there that have a new breakthrough. And really the key is to try to sift through and understand those technologies to understand what is real, what is maybe hype. What is the money grab? Um, And then, uh, and, but I think that the entire transition is quite exciting.
0: All right. Well, yeah, it is a moving target, certainly to say the least. And, you know, you touched on a, a subject also near and dear to my heart with this ever growing need for more and more range. You know, a lot of people arbitrarily put the threshold beyond which they'll buy an EV when they get to parity with how far they can drive in their combustion engine vehicle today. So what is that 300, 400, 500 miles? Who knows? And as soon as you get there, it'll be seven, eight, 900 miles, right? So it's not really practical. People set up their requirements based on the exception case, not the normal case. Exceptions can be handled different ways. So, you know, I really see a, big problem with trying to satisfy that Uh, desire for ever-increasing range, we have to right-size this. And one of the reasons that I think that that's important is something we touched on already with materials. It's wonderful to get to that theoretical moment where we've got enough of these energetic materials out of the ground that we can just keep recycling them and we don't have to mine anymore. But we got a ways to go before we get there. And in the meantime, we're going to see some shortages. So, you know, this is um, uh, an important topic, You know, the sustainability of this juggernaut that we call electrification. Um, do you see us running into a problematic mode before we get to our circular economy, if you will? Are we going to run out of some of these materials or are they going to start pricing themselves out of the game? Uh, just curious what your thought about that as for the, the near and you know, sort of um, not so distant future.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's quite interesting because we're already seeing some laws in Europe and and also, you know, talk here in North America about the amount of recycled material that has to be in a battery. Um, I think, don't correct correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like in 2030, it's something like uh, 20% of a battery that's used in an EV in Europe has to be from recycled material. But if you just backwards calculate how many EV batteries it takes to make up 20% of the batteries that would be produced in 2030. There's not even enough EV batteries out there today, even if you recycled them all. So Mm -hmm. I I think that there could be a very interesting challenge where we are having legislation um, being introduced to sort of, I don't want to say force, but that's pushing the industry in the direction I think it should be going, but maybe with some unrealistic timelines and We need to take a step back and say, okay, what makes the most sense in order to drive this industry forward without alienating a lot of people? Um, You know, we also see, you know, there's lots of articles about the magical black mass and and things like, hey, is this the next gold and stuff like this? Well, there's a basic there's a basic math formula behind that is if that black mass is more expensive than new raw material mined out of the ground nobody's going to use the black mask because if it's more expensive to use the black mass than mine it out of the ground, unless of course you're forced to by regulations, the economics won't work. And so we have to make sure that's a tricky math equation to solve because you have to make it valuable enough that people want to recycle the battery packs so that you can get the material out and then recycle it. But you can't make it so valuable that it's too expensive to reuse it and it's cheaper to go and get new material. So that, that's a, you know, that's like a circular equation in Excel. So you have to make sure you, you could, that's a solvable math problem that we need to figure out.
0: Yes. Interesting. I mean, if there does prove to be some shortages, it's going to kind of revalidate the points you and I made here about trying to right-size the battery for the purpose. You know, if we want these things to be affordable, you know, they can't all have a hundred, kilowatts plus kilowatt hours plus in them. So um, yes, interesting that we share that. Yeah, the comment, just
1: comment a little bit on that, you know, I always say that people try to apply the internal combustion engine refueling mindset to EVs. They think, okay, I run my EV battery down to 25% and then I need to plug it in and oh my goodness, it takes overnight or it takes me, you know, an hour on the DC fast charger. Well, in actuality, if you kind of plug in every, you know, if you have the benefit of having a, even a level two or a level one charger at home, and you can plug in as you come in and park, or if you have inductive charging, you just, you know, park over the inductive charger. You're just trickling it every night and then you almost never need these long recharge times unless you're of course traveling long distances and and we do have to figure out the infrastructure and there's lots of interesting and exciting announcements that are going on with the A- nacs connector and it's going to solve all the problems of dc fast charging it, it doesn't but the, people think it does but anyway what they don't realize is that if you start treating your you know refueling uh, met- mindset, like your laptop or your cell phone, and not like your internal combustion engine vehicle, the use case is completely different. But I would even say that transitions into long road trips as well. You know, both my wife and I, we drive back and forth from Milwaukee to either the Detroit area or up into the Thumb, because we have friends and family there. And we we make that trip all the time in, in our Lightning or when she had her Mustang, and now we'll be doing it in the Bolt. And we often take more frequent stops at locations that have a fast charger. You plug in, you go inside, you go to the bathroom, you get a cup of coffee, you get a snack or whatever, you come out, it's 20 minutes and you've already put on you know 100 more miles onto your, onto your vehicle and that easily gets you to the next stop. And by the time you get to your final destination, you've stopped a few times. Yeah, everybody says, oh, you stopped four times for charging. Well, yeah, but I had to go to the bathroom anyway. So I just stopped and plugged in. And then while I was doing that, I put some more miles in my car. So once we have that infrastructure in place, I I think this problem goes away. And uh, I think it's, you know, we always, my wife, who's also a big proponent in this, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, um, but we always say there's people that want to make it work. And there's people that want to make it not work, <laughs> and uh, so, so so true. We we want to make it work. We know it's not for everybody. We know if you want to go up into the UP and tow your snowmobiles all over the UP in the middle of winter, uh, yeah, you're not going to find EV chargers, and it's and that's not the right application. But I think that the it is a right application for a lot of people, and it and it's a perfect application for us.
0: I find it interesting when you do find the people that seem to be bent on making it not work, um, you can give them a compelling argument that they relate to. For example, many of those aren't really very fond of fueling their car up, spilling gasoline on their car, their pants, their shoes, uh, or, you know, heaven forbid, the diesel smell. Um, You know, so... They quickly forget that there's value in not having to experience all that anymore. Um, You know, they get all caught up in safety concerns. Oh, I don't want to get a car that explodes. And they suddenly, you know, have a lapse of reasoning with regard to the incidence of uh, such thermal events in vehicles and not realizing just how less frequent it happens in an electric vehicle. What they know is that. Whenever there's a news story about a car that lit on fire, it's always an EV, yet they don't realize how many of those fires there were every day that didn't make it into the news because they weren't interesting. So, yeah, yeah, you've got the safety concern um, that um, is a very real advantage for those who choose to look at the data. Um, Then you've got, you know, beyond safety, there is what happens when one of these uh, events occurs, um, I've seen my fair share of gasoline explosions. They can certainly catch you off guard, and you don't get a lot of early warning. You, but, you know, with an EV, there's enough early warning in many cases where you do get the time. What are, you, what are your thoughts about the safety comparison? You know, I, as particularly with regard to how many EVs we ha- have out there, a lot of people will just say, well, we don't have enough to have a good data set. But then you look at even safety incidents per mile, and it's still got a huge advantage. What What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really funny to see how the, I want to say the glorification of the bad events, you know, and, you know, I even post a lot of times jokes on LinkedIn, you know, somebody will show like a fireworks truck catching on fire or whatever. And I'll be like, okay, countdown until somebody says that this is an EV fire. And those are the cells exploding because <laughs> it's going to happen you know everybody wants to point, and it's it's just it's it's amazing to me you know yeah and and as i mentioned before my wife does a lot of stuff where she tries to debunk some of these things and you know when the hyundai had a had their recall on their on their battery packs sh- you know she did the real math and she's told you know hey this is how risky this really is and it's it was such a fraction of, of a percent but it's it it's really amazing how many people even talk to us that that say well, I can't believe you're parking that in your garage. And I'm like, well, you park a gas car in your garage and it's full of gasoline. I mean, everybody knows how dangerous that is. And I don't know, it's, on one hand, I understand their kind of fear about it. It it kind of goes back to the other thing. People that wanna believe in a certain way are gonna find all the articles that say things in that direction. Um, But in reality, the truth is somewhere in the middle. We're suffering also that there's people on the right side and on the left side totally against it, totally for it. And we overhype it, too. You know, we try to, you know, make gasoline cars so bad and they're so impractical and it's so impossible. You know, we can have an eclectic landscape of, of vehicles. But, you know, the point I always try to make is, you know, I think electric vehicles can be used by a lot more people. Once we have a a majority of our population using electric vehicles, especially in, you know, around cities and in suburbs and stuff like this, where you're not traveling very far, we have the capability of putting solar on our houses so that we can get the energy from the sun. Um, And I I think overall, that's a better solution than always, you know, continually to burn gas for the rest of eternity, because eventually it's going to run out. It is polluting. I know it's vehicles are so much cleaner today than they were, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, but still you know, who's going to suck on a tailpipe and, and and do it voluntarily? Um it is it is polluting the environment. So, um, I think there's a better way and it's always a fun discussion.
0: All right. Well, let's try to get into some of that discussion with our time remaining here. Um we've kind of beaten up the battery subject a bit. Um but yeah. motors, you know, you, you are exposed to all different sorts of motor technology. Our listenership would probably appreciate hearing your viewpoints on, you know, next generation motor technologies. This is everything from the modern day radial flux machine. I go out on our floor there and we've got 15 odd motors all torn apart and they all look the same to me. And you got little differences between them, but they're all sort of in that same um design category in my view and then you have axial flux machines which is a kind of a different format and they seem to align themselves well with supercars and things like that we know that that's partly because they're expensive um, but it's also you know uh, commensurate with what they're trying to do with a supercar it's a very power dense application what are your thoughts about axial flux versus radial flux is there is there a trend there worth chasing.
1: I mean I think there's there's a you know there's lots of different trends and the exciting thing was so last week it wasn't just the battery show it was also the hybrid and EB show and there were lots of very interesting technologies out there um you know axial flux motors there was even a, a dual axial flux motor where they can turn half the coils off uh to have like um, higher efficiencies um you know really for the electric motors it's about getting the most amount of power out of a smaller size um, in its application. So this is why we're seeing lots of e-axles being developed. You can use a higher speed e-motor going into an e-axle. Um, we're seeing other industries like EVTOL, um, where they have multiple electric motors in a machine in order to fly, have redundancy. I'm seeing tons of development in those areas for numerous different technologies. And, you know, this is really the cool part of my job is because we can provide power electronics for controlling all of those types of electric motors in those machines. And so sometimes we come back and I have to go to my brilliant, you know, Wempec design engineer, power electronics engineers and say, okay, hey, we have a a company coming to us with a new motor topology um how are we going to control this what does the most of this? because they're trying to test their technology as well maybe to get investors um, maybe to prove it out for applications like ebtol or marine or whatever and so it's the the motor the number of companies that are also developing different motor technologies like you said, smaller size, super high power, and trying to get rid of the rare earth materials. Um, It's quite exciting to be also in the e-motor testing space as well. All right.
0: So now the favorite subject I saved for last. I see in your experience, uh, especially at AVL, you had some roles that were uh, centered around the topic of racing. So I I have a a feeling you have a few things to say about that. Um, And, you know, full disclosure, here I am, director of electrification. A lot of people don't know I'm a lifelong drag racer, and I've been a kind of a combustion head my whole life. And um, I saw what I originally thought was the error of my ways, and now I see it coming around full circle. And, yeah, don't call the combustion engine dead just yet. Uh, So... In racing, you know, there's lots of different um, classes of racing, different types of racing. As I mentioned, I'm a drag racer. Um, as we see this transition to electric race cars, everybody worries about the loss of the visceral sound and the feel of a combustion engine, the, the roar, the, uh, the high revving, uh, exhilarating sound that comes from that, um, you know, the electric car doesn't have much of that, but it has some other things that make it interesting. And I'm I'm curious of your take on this. Is there anything that you wish was happening differently as we transition motorsports into alternative fuels and and uh, obviously electric vehicle racing in itself? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Where are we going? Yeah. So,
1: uh, actually, I think I think we're doing a really good job. You know, I'm a uh I'm a huge MotoGP fan. I'm a huge Formula One fan. I'm excited this weekend. I don't know when this is going to go up, but the it's the new racetrack in India for MotoGP. Um, you know, Red Bull had an off weekend last weekend, but it will be interesting to see what they can do this weekend. I, I like the I like what we're seeing. You know, MotoGP has its mo, uh, Moto E series that's following them around, where they're using electric motorcycles. Um, it's it's quite exhilarating to see. Yeah, some people I like the sound. Personally, I think uh, it certainly doesn't sound like a Moto Moto 3, Moto 2, Moto GP bike, um, but it's still really it, it's it's quite impressive to see what they're doing uh, in terms of being able to get the number of laps at at quite good performance. We're seeing lots of, you know, rally cross events now going to full electric so they can, you know, do them in stadiums and in closed stadiums now. And they don't have the exhaust fumes and everybody getting headaches Um, and the performance is quite crazy, and quite insane. So, yeah, certainly you can't do long rally trips, although they, you know, they do have rally series. So I think it's transitioning into into the racing area, you know, in a good way. to eliminate completely internal combustion engines from racing, you, you, you know, you hit it on the head. The, the sound, you still get, you know, at least I, I'm I'm also still a gearhead. So I still like the sound too of of a of a good race engine. Um, and I think if you tried to get rid of it altogether and eliminate that, you would lose a lot of the fans that would want to join it. Will we ever see an electric NASCAR race? Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I I was I didn't think we would ever see fuel injection in NASCAR. So so uh, it it is exciting to see that at least we're progressing. And and who knows, you know, like that's what's kind of crazy about you know series like Le Mans when you have multiple technologies out on the track together. And as soon as we you know maybe solve some of these issues, like if you can have a, a battery pack that you can recharge really quickly but maybe it only can be cycled 100 times before it's completely dead then maybe those electric vehicles in Le Mans can really compete with the you know the you know the hybrid vehicles that are out there so it's really cool to see the technologies and and see these companies push these technologies which at the end of the day the biggest benefit is Those come down and trickle down into the cars that we can buy, that we can drive. Maybe we, yeah, I saw your drag racing picture on your LinkedIn profile. So I'm like, ah, this guy, he's he's a drag racer. So, um, yeah, the cool thing is, is those technologies can come down. And, you know, when I jump in my F 150 Lightning and I punch it at a light or I take somebody for a ride and I do a launch, um, yeah, it's not racing, but it gets people excited for electrification because they're like, oh my goodness, this isn't a pickup truck. This is, this is crazy and uh, really gets people thinking. And, and I love to, you know, share people that experience because it, it really opens up their minds and then it allows them to say, hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe this is something for me.
0: All right. So just to kind of close that up, I'll, I'll spin it towards drag racing again. I've been watching, following, uh, participating most of my life. And now most recently with electric drag racing, there's been a lot of controversy around that. For years, the electric cars would show up up at the track and embarrass the combustion engine cars, and they kind of got tired of that and came up with an excuse saying, we don't have a safety protocol for your electric car, so you can't race here. And now, just a year or so ago, NHRA embraces electric vehicle racing, and they do have a safety protocol now, and because of that, these vehicles are now commingled on the track and It used to be people rooting for Chevy versus Ford versus, um, you know, whatever comes next. And um, now it's combustion against EV. And I find that fascinating, exciting, and, you know, a formula for maybe bringing some young people into the sport and maybe it'll last to see another day where it's otherwise in a crash and burn spiral. So in drag racing, it's very obvious when you look at it, you see all the, you know, nine- and ten-second electric vehicles that are reasonably affordable now. Um, But there seems to be a limit, right? So where is that limit? It seems to be moving target. It took, I think it was 32 years for a car to go 200 miles an hour in the quarter mile in the 60s. And, you know, we just last year had our first drag racing car do 200 miles an hour in the quarter mile. Um, And it it took – um, a very long time to go from 200 to 300 with a combustion engine. Again, 30 odd years. Um, but there's a lot of speculation saying that we'll be able to get to 300 in just a few years because of just how fast the technology is evolving and how much emphasis there is on the transition. So finally, last part of this is that right now, the pinnacle of drag racing is top fuel, funny cars. Uh, this is nitromethane and um Methanol being burned with really high boost engines, and they're making north of 10,000 horsepower. There's problems even having a dynamometer that'll measure that much power. And if electric technology is going to compete in that space across the board, eh, we're going to need 10,000 horsepower electric drive systems. So, can we get there? Um, I'm wondering if you, you have any thoughts about that insight. You're testing all sorts of different motors. You're using them as part of your products. Um, you know, you've got something that probably comes close to that with locomotives, but it's got to be small and lightweight too. Can, can electric vehicle drag racing get to 10,000 horsepower plus? What do you think? How long it'll take?
1: Uh, yeah, this is. That's an interesting challenge. You know, I've, I, I've been to quite a few, uh, drag races back when John Forrest was racing. He was one of my heroes. And I've breathed, I've breathed nitromethane when they fired that engine up. And you're like, what is going My brain is on fire. So the, the thing is, is there's so much energy in nitromethane and you can transfer that, that energy so fast into the engine that this is what people don't understand. It's it's so we certainly with the electric motor technology, Sig and remats and stuff like this have electric motors that are this big that are 1200, 1500 horsepower. And I could easily see, you know, you putting eight, 10 of those in series on a shaft or even with all-wheel drive, you know, if you had three of those on each wheel, you know, now we're easily talking 10,000 horsepower in the electric motors, however, the challenge will be getting that electrical energy from whatever you're storing it in, whether it's super caps or a battery with a super high level of, of discharge capability. Now we only have to do it for eight seconds, six seconds, or something like that, but that's still a huge amount of energy. So now we ha- now we're talking about cables like this, uh, connections. Um there's a bit I would say that the power transfer from the storage medium to the electric motors is probably going to be the biggest challenge once we get to that point. I think the electric motor is not a not a problem. Um you don't really, in relatively speaking, I, you know, the battery pack or the energy storage system. I think we can do that with super caps um or super high energy, you know, 20, you know, 25, 30 C cells. Um but transitioning the energy through an inverter in a way that it's controllable, trans- transitioning it from DC to AC, that will be the biggest challenge. And um, but now you got my gears turning. I'm I'm <laughs> going to try to figure out okay what would be the best way of doing that. But to me that would be the biggest challenge. But I think we're going to solve that. You know I think. Probably would it would be an integrated inverter on the electric motor with uh, energy storage located on it or very near it, um, and then you would just have to synchronize everything. And I bet and with the, the the interesting part is with the electric motors you would automatically have the traction control that you never would have in a an in internal combustion engine dragster and if you really think about it, you're going to have full power to the floor the whole way down that track. And so I think it could be quite impressive.
0: All right. So yeah, it's one of my visions that if and when they get there and you have the spectacle of a 10,000 horsepower electric dragster racing a 10,000 horsepower nitromethane fuel burner, um, that would be quite a rivalry. And you know, my own thought is that about the time that happens, people will realize just how nasty that nitromethane really is. And nobody should be breathing any of the exhaust from that. But it doesn't take away the fun or the life-changing experience of feeling every molecule in your body resonate when one of those things goes down the road. Uh, so, you know, my thought is that, you know, maybe it'll be about then where we'll have some alternative fuels that breathe new life into the combustion engine. And one of my favorite fascinations is hydrogen and can we get there with hydrogen combustion. That's a really difficult proposition because as you mentioned, nitromethane being really energy dense, hydrogen not so much. So it takes a lot of air to get to big power levels, um, but there's a lot of people working on that. Do you encounter any of that in your work? Do you see anybody doing really cool things with alternative fuel combustion engines?
1: Uh, certainly. So, you know, um, for for example, in a lot of the shipping ports, the vehicles that are moving transportation containers around, if they want to convert them over to hydrogen, burning hydrogen. So we have customers that are doing things like this. Um, we also also in the mining industry, um, whether they're going full electric or whether they're using either a hybrid fuel cell or a you know hybrid fuel cell methodology or sorry, hydrogen fuel cell or whether they're burning hydrogen inside of the combustion engine. Um, The the biggest challenge for me for hydrogen, like you said, is the losses along the way. So from where it's either generated or stored, the losses, you know, hydrogen is very tiny. So if there's any little leaks uh, anywhere, it likes to escape. And if you start looking at the efficiencies from, you know, well to wheel, Hydrogen is has has a lot of significant challenges to it as well as not being as energy dense. So I think that's a that's a that's a difficult problem to solve but you know as long as it's green hydrogen also that's that's great. So it's, it's very exciting to see what they can do and and like I said I think the the future landscape is very eclectic with lots of different technologies providing the appropriate solutions at the appropriate locations. You know, to say that every car is gonna be a fuel cell hydrogen vehicle, I don't think that's feasible. To say every car is gonna be a battery electric vehicle, that's also not feasible. But I think it's really exciting that we have all of these alternate technologies that we can pick and choose and understand these are the best technologies for these different applications. This is where we kind of win as a society and as a whole.
0: All right. Well, we've about exhausted our time. I really appreciate all your wonderful insights, and I really enjoyed turning turning the discussion into a gearhead-to-gearhead gearhead discussion. So uh, to your point earlier, getting your gears turning in your head, I'd love to have a follow-up offline at some point and do some brainstorming, yeah. let you know about some of the activities that I have going on in the background. There may be some synergies there. Um, Perfect. I look forward to a follow-up offline and maybe, who knows, another one online someday. Yeah,
1: this would be great. Thank you very much for the time. It was great to connect with you, even even over the computer. But uh, yeah, it would be also wonderful to meet you in person. You know, like I said, Veronica and I come to the Southeast Michigan area quite often, so uh, maybe we can catch up.
0: That sounds great, Don. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. All right. Cheers.